that's what the tour is. Every day is an FA Cup final. Did you get out for the ride this morning? Because I did see a photo that you put up. What was going on there? This is what happened. I thought, you know what, I'll get out and be a real hero and say sort of how cold it is and do a bit of an Instagram <laughs> story post. And you know, it was zero degrees. But evidently, my Garmin was still referencing the temperature inside my garage. So I went 5Ks down the road and it was it got to minus two. So I actually was more of a hero than what I'd sort of told everyone. Yeah, it was right. freezing. Yeah. I saw that photo. There was like frost on your sunnies. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was one of the braver things you'll ever see in your life this morning, <laughs> Scotty. Like, I knew there'd be sunshine, but there was zero warmth in it. And, I mean, that's what we do at Half Wheel, and we just put our body on the line for the good of mankind and for the good of cycling. Especially if we can draw attention to it and other people can see it. Yeah. And, and we're even more motivated. Well, just to, I mean, we know each other how good we are, but it, yeah. it's great to get some recognition of outsiders. And, you know, if people see that, just let me know how good I am, how brave I am. That'd be appreciated. I saw, I saw the, uh, yeah, you know, your Strava, uh, right, you know, the file, and I noticed that you didn't do the, you know, the climbs. But I would have thought on a morning like that, that would have been a smart move to do both those climbs. Yeah, I did to contemplate warm up, it. That is to, yeah. to warm up. Yep, absolutely. And that was if I could have done the climb and then been ferried back down to ground level. Like to, <laughs> that would have been. You didn't want to do the descent. It's oh. normally the opposite. Because, you know, as most people do, you get that sweat up and you know, it's nice and you warm up. But then that sweat when you're going yeah. downhill in minus degree temperatures isn't the most fun. How long did you ride for? Two hours. And did you get warm at all or did you come home still cold? Uh, I was warm at the end. I was warm at oh. the end, yeah. So I wasn't freezing, um, yeah. but I would have been had I done any descent of any note. Yeah. I actually felt shit this morning too. My legs were heavy and, yeah. Maybe it was just... Maybe um, it's because you've been watching the tour and all that hard riding that you've been watching in the tour perhaps. sort of coming on to you. How like, lucky are we that we get to talk about the tour? Like we, for the benefit of those people listening, we engage in a lot of texting and, you know, we prompt each other with a lot of discussion. It may be the same every other year, but this seems like this year's given us a lot. Yeah. Yeah, last year was full on and I, th- yeah, I agree. It's Maybe it's always like that. I sent that message to you last night. We're talking about stage 14 people. So stage 14 was a like a hilly day with climbs, but not big alpine climbs, right? So it was about 2,000 vertical or something. I sent the message to you. Are you watching this? Because it took 100 Ks for the break to get away, and it was just ballistic. You know, people were constantly trying. It would have been hideous to ride those few hours. And uh, can you believe it? I didn't get a response from Ross. Oh. He did not get a response. So he obviously I was, I was had in bed. Better. Sorry, it's <laughs> <laughs> better to do with so. It's so poor of me. <laughs> anyway, so I sent it to another riding mate, and he goes, "Yeah, he goes. That's what the tour is. Every day is an FA Cup final." And he, he's right, isn't he? Oh, mate. It's funny you mention that because I remember um, listening to Baden Cook speak once um, and he spoke about the tour and what it's like. And he said, look, it's the spectacle itself is everything you could imagine. You know, that's the sideshow and it's such a thrill to be in as a cycling um, nut and, you know, to be able to perform on that stage is great. But he said, it's mm. no fun. It is no fun because <laughs> if you're not at the front flogging yourself, you're at the back flogging yourself trying to hold on. And it's just mm. hideous, like absolutely mm. hideous. 
and then you'll get to a corner and it'll slow down and then you've got to catch up for another whatever how many k's it's um yeah it's uh i couldn't fathom having to go through that torture I heard um, Tyler Hamilton, you know, he rode with uh, Lance's team and then rode GC for himself, pretty good rider. He said that in, he did like eight tours and he goes, in every one of them, he died a thousand deaths, whether <laughs> he was at the front or whether he was at the back, he died a thousand deaths in every one of them. Yep. So he goes, that's just the way it is. <laughs> yeah. Really, your only relaxing contemplative time is in the period before they hit kilometre zero, really. Like, that's the opportunity you get to have a chat. Uh, what are you, you going to get the break today? Uh, then, no, nah, that's it. The, the gloves are off and it's just, yeah, see you at the end, hopefully. Yeah, no, and like the more recent parkour's design where every stage has a bit of action in it, as opposed to, you know, a few years ago or whatever, or even for the last few decades where you had sprint stages, and, you know, the brake would get off and there's a flat stage and, then and, you know, people would say that's boring from the outside, but but it's probably really, you know, from a rider point of view, it's probably critical, you know. So um, uh, I think the riders, uh, again, in cycling, the rider's voice gets overlooked to what's more important from the, you know, people who watch it and the sponsors and the organisers and all that sort of stuff. That's probably a pretty good segue there, Scotty, because that's been a topic of discussion, you know, not only for those who are watching the race, but globally amongst the riders. And, you know, there was some incidents, there's been some crashes, which has been disappointing because it's cost us, you know, some really good performers and some of the guys who are going to be in the mix at the end of the day, Mm. you know, your your Mm. Roglic's and these sort of guys. But it's been a hot topic, the parkours and how they've set it out, the roads. And I mean, it may be a topic of discussion most years, but it seems like this year has been front and centre. Yeah, and I always compare it to another sport that we're familiar with here living in Australia, Australian rules football at the top level, AFL which isn't the biggest participation sport. I think netball is, is but it's certainly the biggest, most established top-level league in Australia. So um, they are really good with player safety. The AFL, it's almost like hypersensitive because on one hand you've got it, the fact that it benefits the players and the players have got a strong union representing them. But on the other hand, the AFL are really clear that if they're not seen to be doing that for the players, then it makes them look bad. So commercially they're motivated, whereas in cycling, the riders are just treated like shit. Like the safety measures, generally speaking, are atrocious in, in the time that I've been watching it for all sorts of reasons. And I'm not saying fence off at 200Ks of, of, a, of a race course. I'm not saying that. There's a lot of stuff that just doesn't get addressed because the riders have got no power, they got no union, and then the complexity of the organisation and the administration. So, yeah, that, that oh, mate, I reckon the riders get treated like shit most of the time, to be honest. Yeah, and I mean, there was a topical one on stage 13, I think it was, where there was a a road that was, I think it was sort of sweeping around after a bit of a descent and there was loose gravel and stuff like that. It was interesting to listen to Lance Armstrong talk about it on his podcast where if they're fair income, the tour organisers, they go ahead, have a look and survey the roads that are coming up and say, listen, we need to divert it or we need to stop and we need to clear the area or whatever we need to do. Because at the end of the day, you know, riders are falling off the cliff and you know, mm. tipping over. It costs, I think there was three or four riders who crashed as a result of that mm. shit road, basically. You know, and as Lance said, the guy who's in charge of where the race goes, he's probably in the official's car sipping champagne with some of the sponsors, and the onus is on him. Yeah, and it's doable. 
like there's a caravan that goes in front of the peloton anyway. In front of the race is about 10 to 20 minutes worth of caravans and cars and safety and security. And then there's the, the promo and the sponsors and the throwing out the, the lines to the crowd, all that sort of stuff, you know, the little furry toy mm-hmm. lines. So it's doable anyway. To be fair to cycling, I have noticed, um, I don't, don't know if I've noticed in the tour, maybe I have, but those, you know, those diagonally sloping fences in the, the last few Ks, so where there's no feet. Yep. So that, that's obviously a much safer thing, and that was brought to a head when um, we had the Tour of Poland crash with uh, Gronewagen and Jacobson. So yeah, yeah. I have noticed that in some races and maybe in the Tour. So credit where credit's due. Scotty, today Pogacar has taken all before him, hasn't he, so far? Like, he's been dominant. He won the TT. He's obviously gone into the Tour as one of the leading contenders, and he won the TT we thought he'd probably perform well, but he was convincing in that. He won the stage for that individual time trial. Ever since then, he's been just a beacon. And I mean, when it comes down to climbing in the big ring and, you know, if there's an attack, he's up for it. He's been able to handle the pressures that come with other teams, putting pressure on your team, you know, maybe seeing mm. a bit of a weakness there. Um, and he's just seemingly taken the tack, right? If I have to do it all by myself, I'll do it all by myself. There's, you know, there's no stress there. But I think his team's probably lifted for him a little bit as the tour's gone on. But uh, mm. shit, he's been super impressive. I'm not the best historian, but um, look, someone might be able to easily correct me here. But in the last 20 years or 30 years, I don't. Has anyone ridden away from the direct competitors like that and gapped them by minutes two days in a row without a massive mishap or a massive crosswind or, you know, like horrific cold conditions, which I know it was on the mountains? He just rode away from his direct competitors and got five minutes. Like, that's just bizarre. So cool, so calm. Actually, I don't think yet he has breathed through his mouth yet. I think he's been breathing (laughs) through his nose the whole time just been so calm the way he's gone about it. I mean, the guy's, what is he, 22, 23? It's extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah, he knows how to race. He's always in the right spots. He was in uh, a couple of stages ago. They had some crosswinds early on and the race got split up initially. You know, he was always in the right spot. So, yeah, he's he's a good rider, mate. He knows how to race. He's more than just a watts per kilo engine. You're right. You look at the screen and maybe look away and look back and all of a sudden he's on the first row just keeping himself out of trouble just tapping away, having a chat to someone. Probably the only mistake he's made was last year. He missed a split with the crosswinds in one of the stages in last year's tour. I don't think he's made a mistake since then. Yeah. I remember that. That was the stage where Bora Hansgrove drilled it on the front for four or five hours and they didn't quite get the win for Sagan. But was that a mechanical or was it, I know, or was it a mechanical and the split? Or I, I don't know. I can't yeah, remember. It possibly, yeah. Possibly well, maybe he was just caught behind. Actually, it might have been. I'm not sure which side of the split was the mechanical. There was one involved yeah. there at some point. So, yeah. But he just said at the end of that stage, oh, it's all right, we'll get it back. And I think he got it back within a stage <laughs> or two, didn't he? Got a, got a minute back. <laughs> the rest is history. Yeah, it's his to lose at this point. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Unless, yeah, like say a crash or get sick or something yeah. like that. The normal thing, the tour is just so shiny and, like you say, every every stage is full tilt and you got the best riders in the best form at the best race where people care the most. So that's the typical tour. I'm, I'm appreciating the tour at a new level again this year, so that's great. And I love the fact that Alaphilippe won the first stage and the way he won it and it was just, you know, he's a bit like Sagan and Alaphilippe are the two biggest victims of the of the oncoming of the vans, the two vans. 
So now Alaphilippe, you know, has more competition in the stuff that he's good at. So he was a bit stiff to not be able to hang on to yellow because he could have hung on to it for a week or two, you know. He could have hung on for another five or six days past what Vanderpol did. So the one, the biggest thing is that the two vans, those two stages, the way Vanderpol won his stage, you know, um, in the stage two, and then the way uh, Van Art won his stage uh, on Von 2. So it's those two together, the fact that they've both done as brilliantly as each other. Yeah. That's what I love. Yeah, I, I was going to mention Wout too. Look, Van der Poel is a superstar. We know that. Um, and he's going to be a superstar for a long time to come. But for Van Art to win on Mont Bontu, that was as clinical a climbing exhibition as you'll see. It was absolutely sensational. He just got in the zone. Alessandri went up the road and the cameras went to a front-on shot of Van Art climbing. And he, he just had these eyes and it was like a... He was like a predator just stalking his prey and he just kept tapping away and tapping away and he and he got him. And then when he got side on with Alessandri, he didn't even look at him. He just kept going and just tapping away and tapping away. And it was all over. Mm. It was all over mm. after that. Mm. God, he's good to watch. He, mate, and also he's a good peddler, isn't he? Jeez, oh. The way he sits on a bike and the way he turns the pedals with all, like it's the opposite of Balka Molama who won last night, which shows, <laughs> you know, you can do it in a lot of different ways. Yeah. That's fine. And he had Fabio Aru throwing the fucking bike from one side of the road to the other as he climbed. And he could get away with it because he weighed 20 kilos. But, yeah, like that power-to-weight ratio in that art, like just sits on the bike, no lateral movement, turns the pedals, the strength to do that, the discipline to do that, you know, that's trained. The mental toughness to be able to stay in that spot and not look for a little extra movements to take the pressure off your body as you're turning. The, you know what I'm trying to say? That yep. stability. But also the commitment to do it. Like you're saying, you know, the face just, I saw his face. It was just expressionless. It was focused. He was riding. He knew he was in for a chance and he had his plan. I'm just going to ride this like a time trial to the top in a composed white, like, ah, oh, man. And as everyone said, he did that after finishing the day before, finishing a metre off Cavendish's wheel in second place. Yeah, exactly I mean, right. Yeah, The guy's a jet. And then he does heroics in the Spring Classic. So it's like, fuck it out. Yeah, he's, um, he makes middle-aged blokes like you and I just <laughs> go weak at the knees, Scotty. What a man. Well, yeah, I was like, I get inspired and I say to myself, maybe I'll have one less scoop of ice cream tonight. <laughs> We maybe need a um like a wristband that mm. that just has the the letters WWD. Yeah. So if you want one extra scoop of ice cream, you look at your wristband. It says, "What would Wout do?" Yeah, that's totally right. I've actually used that technique once when I'm doing the um, <laughs> the Alpine Classic up in your region. Yeah, yeah. like you know, two hundred fifty k ride, four thousand vertical, thirty eight degrees. I did that. Yeah. yeah, I had that sort of slogan thing on the wrist. It helped. Discipline. Did it, helped. it did good? Yeah, just a little conscious reminder. Hey, yeah. last thing on Van Art or the two vans. I don't know whether you're across this, but on Lance Armstrong's podcast, the move they were mentioning that um, Johan Bruneel said that if they wanted to, if they were up for it and they were committed to it, in three years, Van Art and Van der Poel could be Grand Tour winners. It would mm. take three years for them. And I've got a feeling that he might have mentioned something similar last year because I remember us talking about it. Um, hmm. But he mentioned it again this year that if they were up for it, if they committed to it wholeheartedly, in three years they could be Grand Tour winners, both of them. Mm. I could see Van Art being able to do that if he wanted to and was prepared to accept what came with that, which is he'd have to give up on some of his one-day ability. 
you know, he's going to train that sort of, some of that stuff out of him. I couldn't see Vanderpol being able to do it because he hasn't got the efficiency in his riding. He's he's got explosivity and he can climb short climbs and hang on, but he's you know his head and shoulders drop around. He's hasn't he's not as neat on the bike. So I don't believe Vanderpol could do it effectively without starting to get injured and overuse and all that sort of stuff. That's my opinion. I think Van Art could. I'm not yeah. saying. Look, I'm not saying. I, no, I'm, I'm not argue, trying to argue with Bruneil because he's so good. But um, that's just in my thoughts. In terms of, I think he's, if you're going to be a bigger body, you have to be super efficient on the bike. You know, biomechanically. I think Van Art does that, and Vanderpol does not do that. It's yeah. not a criticism of him. He's a bit of a thrashing machine, isn't he, Vanderpol? Yeah. Like he's more of a just brutish explosiveness and, and just yeah. thrashes away. But to give it a little bit of context, Armstrong was doubtful about that as well. Like Lance, as much as he respects Bruniel's opinion, he said, I like the dude, but I don't know if he could I don't I don't agree with it. That that was his opinion. Yeah. yeah. And look, it's not gonna happen because yeah. you know, there's like you said, there's too much other stuff at stake. They said the same thing a couple of years ago about Alaphilippe. You know, he could be a grand tour. There's no fucking way, mate. That guy has not got the patience to be a guy <laughs> who strategically bides his time. It's not yeah. It's not in his thing. And his physique doesn't want to do that. His physique doesn't want to sit on wattage like Tim DeClerc does, just sit on wattage for 400 watts for 45 minutes. His physique doesn't want to do that. It wants to do, you know, you've seen it. You said yeah. he's, he's twitchy, you know. So it's an easy thing to say. I don't know. I think Wout could do it if he really wanted to. But I think he'd have to recognise that he might have to give up a few things that he likes to do currently. Mm. It's anyway, probably, at the end of the day, it's probably a measure of how talented this guy is that potentially <laughs> he's capable of doing it. That's right. And that people get excited and say, you know, I reckon that could happen, yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah, Wow's sure. probably sitting back saying, fuck that. <laughs> get fuck down that, man. I just fucking won. eight kilos, jam that up your ass. How am I going to get over Camelberger with, with that kind of way? I mean, it's fantastic that those guys have delivered, like, Matthew Vanderpoel, he fucking delivered. That win on stage two, he's attacked. Cole Brelly came along and Cole Brelly went in front of him midway up the climb and then he went on to Cole Brelly's wheel and then Cole Brelly wasn't going fast enough. So then Vanderpoel had to surge again. I reckon he surged three times in that climb. Fucking unbelievable commitment and horsepower and all-round ability, you know, and does it with all the heat on him, all the attention, all the hype, you know, the pull-it-all thing, the whole bit. That's a phenomenal deliverance by Vanderbilt, in my opinion. Huge. Yeah. It was that was awesome. That was like you said it, horsepower. Fucking exhilarating to watch. Also, attacks on the first time up that climb, Mer Breton, because he knows he's got to get the points. He's got to get the yeah. points so he can get the yellow, because that's the whole point of it. So it's like, <laughs> oh good. What else has caught your eye, mate? Well, the Cavendish thing. Isn't that huge? Amazing. Like this is that's it, awesome, I reckon. It is. It's a it's amazing. It really is amazing. Scotty, I remember back and you've heard the podcast, I'm pretty sure, um, a little while ago, it's possibly eighteen months ago, on Stanley Street Social. There was a guy who's a sports psychologist who'd done some work with Cav, um, exclusively yeah, with yeah. Cavi. He doesn't work specifically with teams, but works exclusively with riders. And when Cav was at his lowest, like coming back from his illness. You know, and it's been spoken about a lot in the last week and a half how, you know, there was a point where he 
just didn't think he could keep going because he, he thought it's all over. You know, I'm done and I don't like it anymore. You know, I don't like the whole package. It's doing my head in and, and I'm done. And there was a time where they went back and I think um, Dr. David Spindler was this guy's name and he's really interesting to listen to. And he was with Cav for quite a while and they actually went back to the Isle of Man and you know, they went for a ride and Cav went to some of the places where he, used, where he grew up and he was riding around. He just wanted to discover the love of cycling again. So this guy mm. was at the bottom of the barrel, mate. Like he was, mm. he didn't love the sport anymore. You know, the sport had given him so much and he fucking hated it. So not only did he have to find form again, he had to find his love for the sport again. Mm. So that makes it even more meritorious what he's done in the last mm. week and a half. It's fucking unbelievable. Yeah, you can look at him and go, oh, he's just old and he's past it. But like you say, he went from quick step to Dimension Data. And in was it the first season at Dimension Data? You got those four stage wins, I think it was, in 2016. Yeah. And then the next few years he had the Epstein-Barr virus and sickness and injury. And, you know, that's when I guess what would have felt all hard and shit and he's getting nothing from it. And then we had our comment on him when he, you know, talking about him going to Bahrain McLaren for last year. And he did nothing there. And we, you know, we talked about it. Was it a big sort of a golden handshake, you know, that signing up to go and ride there? So then, yeah, he's come back full circle to come back. So it's pretty amazing. Like you talked to, you mentioned just then about connecting to the reason why he started riding and racing in the first place. And that sounds unreal. Like if that sport psych has gone and gone with him to do that, to sort of be there with him as he explores that and reconnects that, that's good sport psyching, isn't it? You know, yeah. going back to the homelands and so that's a good effort in itself. But anyway, what what else does it take, mate? What else do you reckon it takes for someone to go from being a the man, the champion, to being nowhere and hating it and no one wanting him to now where he is um, tying Merckx's record with a chance of, you know, surpassing the tour victories record? Do you do some work with this sort of stuff like culture and how people can the things that the levers that you can pull on to get results. What do you yeah, reckon? and this probably goes back to what this guy David Spindler was talking about. That, as we mentioned, Cavers had to find the love of cycling and why he first started and, and the joy that he got out of that. And he was actually doing a paper on are athletes performing better or do they perform better when they're happier? So he spoke yeah. about, and it was an actual thing called happy case. If you're in a good spot, a really good place, surrounded by good people, you're comfortable in your own self, your performance, you know, regardless of what level you're at, in Cav's case, mm. the best level of cycling in the world, mm. if everything's put in place, you're going to perform better. Mm. And what we've seen, he's, he's obviously had a few teams over his time, and now he's come back to the team that has, and I think it's universally acknowledged, the best culture in the world, Peloton. Mm. The Koenig Quick Step, you know, the Wolf Pack. It's not just a catch cry. I mean, it is, but they actually live it, you know, these values that they've got. And for him to be immersed in that, I wouldn't sell that short either. The, the fact that he's back at that team, you know, their strong culture, they believe in each other, they work for each other. And I mean, he's the guy that gets to finish it off. But wow, like, you know, that's contributed to it massively, I think, in the last. Mm. We're seeing the effects of it. But even if he hadn't, if he had won one stage, you'd still yeah, be able to do the same thing. Yeah, it's a huge success. Yeah. And I, yeah, I agree with that. And um, not only have they got that culture and that team, 
you see them skillfully working that, in, you know, putting that into action during races too, and not just lead outs because they've obviously they've done that brilliantly as well, but just generally in the race and wherever the races are fast and flatter and um, there's tactical decisions and there's splits and all that stuff, obviously because they come out of that sort of racing in Belgium primarily. They're really good at understanding where each other are and how they can use each other. They often they're they're players in that. I mean, you get, they've got good riders in the first place, and left there obviously recruits well. Him and his staff, but they're able to do it. They're very good. That type of teamwork is very good. And then it goes into the into the leadouts. And then you've got like say Ala Philippe, who's used to being the number one bloke, and he's the world champion, and he's happy to go to the front on the leadout. And it's not just for more attention because he knows that actually. This is what my job is right now because it's not where I cross the line first. Actually, here's my my next job is this. And then you've got Morkov, who's the best setup man since Renshaw. It's a perfect storm for Cavendish from that point of view. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned Morkov. You know, all of those results that Cat's got in this year's tour it could be attributed back to him. I mean, what a team. But, you know, symbolic of the way they set up, really, at the end of the day, that this was mentioned in that other podcast that I've referenced a couple of times now. They give more of themselves to each other and the results Mm. flow from there. I'd love to know how that sort of culture is fostered, you know. Sometimes you get culture just by the people that are involved and it just sort of starts to happen. But also, yeah, what are the things that actively done to encourage that? Like you say, for people to willingly give themselves up for the team or for others. And perhaps, Scotty, there's an element of money too. Like they don't pay as much as what other teams do. So if there's an acknowledgement amongst your team that, hey, you're here because you don't want the big bucks. Now, they're obviously, they're getting paid well because they're professional mm. athletes. But um, if that filters down through the rest of the team, hey, we're all here for the one reason. It's for each other. It's not for the, the handout at the end of the day. We still want to perform. Mm. We still want each other to do well. Um, so that's maybe another element to it. And I think importantly in Cav's case, I mean, he's changed. He's grown up. He's mm. a lot older and wiser and probably, you know, after the experience he's had, he views cycling differently as well. So, mm. And um, Cav spent three years at Quickstep and then he left and spent three years at uh, Dimension Data. Now, I reckon he would have, I, I don't know, but I reckon he would have gone a big pay rise from going from Quickstep to Dimension Data. He got four stages of the tour of Dimension Data and then got six, so then didn't do much. And then he's gone to McLaren. And again, I reckon that just seemed like a cash cow. And then apparently he's come back to, you know, because he was crying at last year's Skelter Prix, saying this might be my last race. So yeah. something precious to him was being taken away. So then the story goes that he, you know, somehow he started, had a conversation with Patrick Leffer there of Quick Step and said, listen, can I race? Don't even have to pay me or maybe, you know, give me 30,000 euro or whatever, minimum. So you've got someone there who is hungry, yep. you know, Cavendish is hungry, and then uh, Left of Air feels great because he hasn't had to um, write, you know, write off his budget for him. And he goes, he sort of can't lose. We, we get the we get the publicity if he doesn't perform, and maybe if it goes well, maybe we get a few results out of him. So that hunger, that so Cavendish is prepared to forego maybe what he feels like he deserves, you know, from what he's done to what he wants. You know what I mean? So you've got the hunger and the, he's able to put his pride aside and go, you know, well, because otherwise he could go to a bloody another small team that could pay him a lot of money, but he That's fucking right. wouldn't do any good. Yeah. And that leads me, Ross, into Peter Sagan. Oh, wow. Fucking hell. What's happening there? 
Well, yeah, obviously in the tour he's pulled out because his knees fucked from those two stacks. He had one on, I think, on oh, in the first couple of days he had one, and then he had another one which well, didn't le- seem too bad with Caleb yeah. um, Ewan. Yeah, he sort of landed on top of Ewan a little bit, and yeah, yeah. it was a bit messy. Yeah, so he's leaving Bora Hansgrohe, and the word on the street is he's going to Total Direct Energy. Is that the team now? They keep twisting their name yeah, a little Total bit. Energies, or yeah. Yep. <laughs> anyway, it's French team, isn't it? French yep. team. So, again, quick step, we're having chats with Sagan, but then they sort of balked a little bit because apparently, you know, Sagan comes with an entourage and um, meaning, you know, he's got Bodnar and Daniel Loss and then Loss, some, yep. some support staff that go with him. Yeah, all that, right? And that's fine if he feels like, again, that supports him to perform, but he's going to tell to direct energy now. Ross, how about this? Well, how do you feel if I say this to you? Does it in a person like Sagan's position, and this I can't judge him at all because I don't fucking know anything, but when you're at that stage of your career like he is, is it about saying to yourself, I want to be recognised and valued for what I've done to this point and that's going to inform my decision about where I go, who I race with, or does it want, need to be more about what you still want to achieve in the sport? Because if you want to be recognised for what you've done, you go to the fucking retirement home, don't you? You get the big contract, you get all your mates there to come, right? But if you go to yourself, say to yourself, I'm desperate to win more races, if that's what I want, then you go to the team that can help you more and I fucking I'll stand by this. Quick Step helps him more, for example, more than Total Direct Energy is going to do for racing. So what is it? And again, I don't know. But maybe he thinks he can still win in anyway at the other joint. I don't fucking think he can. And then you compare that to the Cavendish example. So he's not getting paid, basically. He's getting paid by his sponsors, but he's not getting paid. He's just put himself in the one of the top teams, which gives him the best chance. Who knows? Cavendish all along might have said, listen, if I've got to go anywhere, I'll go quick step. And maybe he did have those Merck's, Merck's victories in record in mind. Do you know where I'm sort of getting? I'm, I'm jumping around oh, a bit here. Nah, shit. You've nailed it, mate. And there comes a time in every athlete, professional, amateur, semi-professional, whatever you are, and it happens a lot more often towards the end of your career. Okay, so Sagan's the perfect example of this. There needs to be a time and there has to be a time for you to prosper where you've got to change the way you go about it. You've got to reinvent yourself. So you get to that crossroad, you get to that junction and you say, right, am I going to reinvent myself or am I just going to go along and be comfortable doing what I've done for however many years, which means I ride with the same guys, I ride the same bikes, I fucking take my chef or whatever, whatever he's fucking bringing yeah, I, I do all the things that I've done to get me to this point and yep. that I like and I'm used to and familiar with. Yep. And I want to just jump in, Ross. I love the fact that you said this is not just top-line athletes. This is all athletes, all people who play sport. Anyone who's listening to this right now, this has relevance to, whether it's in your career. Yeah, exactly. Do I just keep going along with the way it's been and I'll change teams or change jobs? Or do I change it all in order to refocus? Yep. And there could be an element of that that means you've got to go back to go forward. So whether that means you take less money or your guys who you like to ride with they can't come or whatever that may be. You've got to make a call. And if you want to continue on and change the landscape for yourself mm. to get better, the good ones do it and they swallow mm. their pride. Um, Cav's done it. It's perfect that we talk about this after talking about Cav because, you know, they're polar opposites. What's happened? You know, the, the outcomes yeah. of both of them. And when I heard this news, I've gone, what the fuck no, is he thinking? Exactly. It's as simple as that. It's like, oh, no. 
Because fucking hell, who's gone there and done anything good anyway? <laughs> like, you've got to go to the good teams. Can I just say two things here too? I'm not trying to say it's more important for an athlete to keep focusing on pure victories and winning and the performance in the sport than be comfortable in their life or get a good paycheck. Or anything. I'm not mm. trying to say that. There's no judgment there. Who am I to do any of that? But, if it, again, if we were advising him, and seriously, just say we were, and it's like, well, what do you want here, Pete? Like, what do you want? And if he think, like, surely he doesn't think he can still get good success going on a team like that with all these posse around him. You know, if he did want to get more victories, right, he's got to overcome younger guys who are as hungry as he was. He's got to surge again. So he's got to make himself uncomfortable. So he's got to get rid of Daniel Oss, for example. He's got to get rid of the posse. He's got to get rid of all those things which made it supported him and made it comfortable for him and actually increased his level of performance. He's got to get rid of that and go back to the fucking basics if, if, that's what he wants. And if he doesn't want that, I'm not judging that at all. I, I, I'm not. I'm like, fuck, you've given me a lifetime's worth of sporting joy. So 100% agree, mate. It's yeah. um, As soon as you heard that, it was like, oh, fuck, don't go there. Yeah. Fuck it up. I harked back to when we were talking about him in episode 13, the episode before this, and we spoke about the potential irrelevancy that he has right at this point in time. He's won one race in... What is it? Fucking 18 months, Scotty? Something like that? Something like that, yeah. So that should be alarm bells in itself saying, righto, fuck, I've got to do something here. And it means that, like you said, I've got to get uncomfortable and I've got to change the way I go about it. I think he's gone from being irrelevant to fucking disappearing off the face of the earth. So the winner, the big winner in all this is Patrick Lefevre, mate, at Quick Step heading up. He's the guy who just looks like fucking gold. <laughs> Because it's like, I like Peter Sagan, and I'm sure Lefebvre was thinking, yeah, we could get something out of him. We could get some results with him, no no doubt. Okay, it's a big package deal. No, we can't do that. And he, he said that fairly. So then they get Cavendish, and then he's the trifecta in all this, mate. Up until three weeks before the tour, who is Quick Step Sprinter? Yeah, Sam Bennett. So, so, sorry, Sam who? <laughs> yeah, well, Bora Hansgrove's a new sprinter. <laughs> Yeah. So it's like, you know, you use that expression, kissed on the dick, Patrick Lafayette, fucking hell. Amazing how it's sort of all turned out. I'm not saying, you know, he planned it all, but, um, yeah, it's worked out well for him. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, Sam Bennett now, you know, he'll be thinking about all sorts of stuff. I'm not saying he deserves to be thought of critically, but it's like, what are you going to do now, mate? Ball's in your court, Sam. So, Scotty, the Tour de France demands that you're committed. The riders commit, so we need to commit as viewers. When you're in, you're in. Yeah. You're fucking all in and you commit for three weeks, 21 stages. Even mm. the rest days, you've got to be ready for mm. what's to come. So as television viewers and as avid cycling fans, we do that. We don't just do it for the Tour, but we go another level for the Tour. Mm. Which brings us to a conversation that I'd like to open in and around the broadcast that comes to us from SBS. When we commit to the tour, we commit to that race, but we're tied to SBS. You know, we have to watch it because the GCN app that we've been massive fans of. Um, due GCN to, Race Pass. GCN Race Pass it. app. Due to contractual reasons, you know, in and around who owns the tour, they don't release it to Australia. They obviously have their own broadcast, but they don't release it to Australia. Mm. So we're stuck with SBS in a sense. That's right. Um, 
and we're yeah. also given no choice in it. Yeah, and, and I believe it's probably, well, not probably, it's where we're within our rights to give it some real good analysis as to how they're yeah. tracking. You know, we yeah, yeah, yeah. we deep dive yeah. into the racing and the riders. Yeah. We need to analyse how the broadcasters yeah. are going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the key ingredients are that they've, I think, uh, that SBS have been doing it for like 20 years. So they were committed to, um, you know, spending their budget on getting this telecast from the early days, um, possibly when, you know, there was only a fringe sort of a interest in, in Australia. And now as it's got bigger and bigger, they're still it. So they've, they've had that longevity, so good on them for that. And in that time, I think they've had one key ingredient, one key person, which is Mike Tomolaris. He's been in it from all the way through. So yeah. that's another key ingredient. And then the second key ingredient, I guess it was about four or five years ago, uh, it used to be the legendary Phil Sherwin. Paul, Paul Sherwin. And- Phil, sorry, <laughs> Paul Sherwin, Phil Liggett. <laughs> <laughs> and then of recent years, it's then more been an Australian local commentary team, Matt Keenan, Robin McEwen, ex-pro, ex-Green Jersey, Tour de France winner. And now, refreshingly, they've now got also Bridie O'Donnell. Yep. Bridie O'Donnell, ex, yep. ex-pro rider as well. So... You know, you've got some local flavour in there. Mm. You mentioned Mike Tomlaris, and it's probably best that we, because they open the night's viewing, so it's yeah. best that we probably start with that scenario yeah. that we're faced with when we flick onto yeah. SBS. And yeah. So this the, is where I'm going to cut in, Ross. I can't, I can't handle this shit anymore. This is where the difference between being a sports fan or a, a television tourist or a cycling fan. And the way the SBS coverage is done, most of it, it's not for the cycling fan. It just fucking gives me the shits and you the shits. And, um, you know, fucking hell. Stop doing the cooking. Fuck the cooking off. I don't want to know. Stop fucking talking about Cadell Evans 10 years ago. Yes, it was great. And, yes, he's a great guy. And I'm really impressed every time I hear him speak. And that was a great achievement. But stop fucking banging on about it. And stop fucking asking Macca if fucking Richie can win a fucking sprint stage, you fucking muppet. Tomo, <laughs> fucking buttoning up. He, he's um, I think he's a bit too comfortable. I think Tomo, he's, yeah. he doesn't know what he doesn't know. What the fuck's going on? Well, there's been a lot of advances in television coverages in sporting contests and sporting competitions, and a lot of those channels and um, productions that are put together, they've advanced exponentially. Like they're unbelievable. Some of the broadcasts that are brought to us now, and SBS seemingly their gears are jammed. Like Tomo's glued to the seat and they can't get rid of him. He reminds me, you remember that movie Weekend at Bernie's? Like, he's just stuck on the couch, mate. I'm reticent to really bag the shit out because they're putting themselves out there. But, you know what, it's their job, so they deserve to be critiqued. And he is fucking horrendous. He mumbles his words. He, uh, he doesn't um, know some he, of the years that the right. races were on. His ability to not listen inside the conversation that he's on, one-on-one with the, the guest, which is usually Dave McKenzie and other ex-pro, his ability to not listen to the conversation that he's a part of while he's on TV is amazing. Yeah. He's amazing. And then you and Dave McKenzie, you can tell he's sort of standing there with his dick in his hands. Yeah. And then the only time Tomo comes to life is when the yeah. names Cadell Evans and Richie Porter mentioned, which you touched on before, Scotty. But then the other night, he couldn't remember what year Cadell was riding in this stage. It was like, he should remember because he's told us it's a 10-year anniversary <laughs> 50 fucking times an episode. Oh. Tomo has had his day. I think we both agree <laughs> on that. 
And you know, yeah, mate, this is your swan song, Tomo. I'm afraid he's not. Um, he's not paying attention. He hasn't evolved. He needs to grow. The the schmaltzy's '80s sort of TV host, the Eddie McGuire thing. That's got to go. That's not savvy enough at all. Yeah. And then you've got, I think, Dave McKenzie, who loves to sit on the fence and loves yeah. to, like, you know, Tomo will say, "Well, what about this stage? Uh, it's a sprint stage, uh, Dave. Do you think Richie's a chance?" And then Dave will politely <laughs> sort of say. Well, that's a good suggestion. Richie has um, done some sprint training a few times in his career, but probably more for the sprinters of this one, Tomo. Yeah. So that's what Dave has to do time and time again. Yeah. It's like he just hangs him out to dry. Yeah, I'll give credit to Dave because, as you said, um, he sits on the fence. He's doing well to be part of the broadcast with splinters up his ass the whole time. But, mate, I think he humours Tomo a fair bit and he thinks, like, Deep down, he's thinking, I'm still putting up with this bloke years after his his boy date, and it's it's embarrassing. Inside his own head, inside Dave McKenzie's head, he's like, okay, it's coming, it's coming. All right, there it is. Okay, yep, thanks, Ty, you're consistent. Yep, drop me in it. And he's like, how do I distance myself from this one? Okay, all right, okay, I'll I'll agree with him, and then I'll just sort of gently offer up an alternative view. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Go. Yeah. Yeah. And before that, he's thinking if this prick mentions Richie Port one more time, <laughs> I am walking off set. And yeah. just on Tomo again, <laughs> one thing that has shown him up even more this year been the introduction of Kate Bates, you know, who's yeah. been on set a bit, super yeah. eloquent, uh, knows the stuff, been a writer, knows the writers, <laughs> which is important. And no, it more makes, than two riders. Yeah, it makes Tomo look even more moronic, unfortunately. <laughs> and then you've got like then you've got on air, right? On air during race. So you've got more of the race. So you've got Matt Keenan, who's done the hard yards and been there for a long time and done a put a lot of effort and a lot of passion, loves it. But again, I reckon it's like he's been part of the team when it was in, you know, the footy team was in like fourth division. You know, now the team's in first division and he still thinks he's he's got to do it all and, and he can get away with crappy habits. So you got him doing that. And, look, it's not all bad, but then you pair him up with Robbie McEwen, who's actually quite similar to Matt Keenan and they like to have precise information. So what it ends up becoming is almost like a, they had their own race while they're calling the Tour de France and it's a race to be the most correct and call it earlier. So they've got this competitiveness as well. And I'll tell you what, neither of them are afraid on air to say, no, you're wrong. It's actually, it's not 56, it's 56.2, Matt, <laughs> or, or 49.8. They do a lot of that. And then yeah. you've got Bridie who's there just sort of rolling her eyes half the time going, can we just get on with it? Now, last year I was moved enough by her introduction to the SBS commentary team for the tour. I was moved yeah. to actually direct message her on Instagram just to give her some gratification around what she'd been doing because I think she was initially a breath of fresh air and now she's providing a little bit of levity and a little bit of clarity in the whole situation around, um, well, it's just even things out. And I gave her some kudos for that because I think she's been a really good introduction to the commentary team against, as you pointed out, Scotty, Robbie McEwen, who is ever the racer. Like, he is just racing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's a competitor. He's a competitor. You can see it. And he competes with Keenan, and Keenan's trying to get Robbie's approval constantly and com- and ends up getting drawn into it. So it's a competition between those two for sure. Yeah, yeah. And don't worry, Bridie is smart mm. enough to know her place too. So if there's a question about sprinting, she leaves it to Robbie. Like she's not cutting him off and, you know, not letting him have his say. One thing I was happy about, when the time trial was on, 
they gave Bridie and Matt Keenan in particular gave Bridie some airtime and asked her some questions because that was her one. She was a time trial mm. rider. She held mm. the hour record for the women at one point. Um, I'm not sure. She might still hold the hour record for women. But yeah, let her have um, a little bit of airtime there, which was pleasing because I think quite a bit, and we've spoken about this, Scotty, quite a bit, she gets cut off in the whole operation. Yeah. And that's the other thing on the commentary. It is a bit weird how that, like, someone will say something and then Keenan will make a comment straight after that has no relevance to what was just said as though it never happened. And usually it's so he can trot out some fact that he knows too. So it's a bit weird and... um, yeah, she seems to have them covered, to be honest. Like, I think yeah. those blokes, those two guys, are sort of a bit dopey and they don't realise that she's got them covered. She's got them covered overall. Yes, they've got their own strengths and they do their own role and they're good in that, but they're sort of a bit, oh, I don't know, I think that they're a little bit dismissive at times towards her. Yeah. To be fair, I think it's improved as the tour's gone on. Yeah. Uh, I've noticed I a little bit too. in the last few nights that it has improved. Yeah, I agree. So it gets to the point now, Scotty. What do we do about it? You know, what do we do? Yeah. Well, I think um, we set up a GoFundMe page to hire an assassin to take Tomo out, and then the others will get the message. Because Sun Tzu, you know, the famous Chinese general, he said, uh, execute one, educate a thousand. And maybe that can be a quite effective strategy. GoFundMe, how much does it cost to get a shit-hot hitman? Yeah, well, I don't know of any, but I'm sure we could, like, just, you know, some shady tights around your area. Yeah. Sure. Well, I, I try to trigger. I don't. I want to protect their identity as much as I can. Um, mm. But I think with Tomo, I think it'd be a pretty easy sort of a killer. You just tell him to be somewhere, <laughs> and he'd get lost at some stage anyway. So that's not a massive issue. And I mean, at the end of the day, he's playing that weekend at Bernie's role pretty well. He's actually dead as we speak. So it's um, his ability. Like the other night, I would keep banging on. This is pretty negative right now, but fuck it. It just needs to get better. You know, the whole telecast has to evolve. It has to. The other night, he goes, so, Macca, tonight's stage, two times up Montfon 2. Got to be a big stage, Macca. You know, giving him nothing. Going to be a big stage, Macca. And Macca has to go, okay, yeah, I've got to fabricate something. So Macca does well. He goes, this is Dave McKenzie. He goes, yeah, I actually, um, you know, a lot of people talk about Mont 2. I actually really liked it as a climb. I, I sort of felt like it was all right. I didn't mind it. I was somehow able to fit into how what it's required. So Mac has done that to his question in this. And then Tomo goes, and look at this crowd on the side of the road here, Macca. There's so many people at this tour. And then Macca's trying to go, what the hell? And then Macca goes, yeah, well, yeah, they're coming out, aren't they? It just goes to show the Tour of France is as popular ever. And then Tomo goes back. So two times up the Mont 2, Macca. What do you reckon? It's like, what the fuck are you fucking listening to your own questions, you muppet? <laughs> oh, he's everywhere but nowhere, isn't he, Tomo? <laughs> He's not listening. He's not present. No. Not present. And he needs to have come further for 20 years of doing this. He needs a good run in the reserves, Ross. Well, I think he's past that. I think we give him a farewell game and we shut him out the door, to be quite honest. He's so, a seat at the bar. Yeah, and maybe he can, you know, just drift off into the sunset. But I'm sort of thinking that, you know, there's two guys who co-host a reasonably successful podcast. <laughs> you know, this time of year, they're cycling fans. They come from a good place. They may have to keep their swearing and their language in check a little bit. But what I'm trying to say here is, Scotty, we're available. You know, we're mm. guns for hire. Mm, that's right. But a bit like Patrick Lefebvre and that sort of thing with the deal with Peter Sagan, we'll come in, but we're not being employees. We're running. We're, we're going to invoice you. We're st- keeping our own operations. All right. Yeah, we're that's the deal. Yeah. 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 That's right. Then the negotiations would start. Well, what do you want? Well, 
well, it's just us. Mackenzie isn't in it. Bates can come along when, you know, she's available. Mackenzie's yeah. gone too. Yeah, and um, Keno can be the stats guy that we call on three times a yeah. stage. A bit like Ash Tour on Triple M footy. You know, That's we, right. Exactly, exactly, exactly. Speak and when you're like, spoken to. And, yeah, exactly. We'll ask you for information. You produce it. And also, don't forget that you'll also be the butt of the jokes. And also, we will regularly cut you off, even though you're answering the question that we've asked you, because we've been taught by the best in Tom Alaris. <laughs> yeah, Keno, it's all about us here, mate.